the very roots of eating, of negativity and singularity, including the ultimate form of singularity, which is This is the typical violence of information. It's violent because what happens there is a murder of the real, the vanishing point of reality. Let's not have a misunderstanding. Welcome to podcast with Cooper Cherry. Today I'm very excited to have um, Dr. Ruth Kinna joining us. Um, Dr. Kinna is a professor of political theory at Longborough University, working in the Department of Politics, History, and International Relations. She specializes in political philosophy there. She's the author of William Morris, The Art of Socialism, and co-editor of the journal Anarchist Studies. But today, she has joined us to discuss her latest book, which is The Government of No One, The Theory and Practice of Anarchism. So, Dr. Kenna, thanks so much for joining us this evening. <laughs> well, thank you for having me on. Absolutely. Um, before we do get started, I will just mention a couple of brief things for the listeners. Do feel free to follow us on Twitter at podcast co cooper, on Instagram at podcast underscore co underscore cooper underscore cherry, and if you feel like um, contributing to the podcast, if you're really enjoying things, uh, do feel free to look us up on Patreon. That is patreon.com forward slash podcast CO Cooper Cherry. But we are really lucky to have Ruth joining us. I think this was a really, I feel like this book is a really excellent primer for anyone that is interested in what anarchism is all about. You really lay out a good, a lot of historical developments of ideology, some of the actual events, the history, biographies, different theories, a really robust tool I would definitely recommend to anyone who's out there that's not as familiar with anarchism to, to take a look at this book. Well, thank you very much. I mean, I, I suppose I come at anarchism as a historian of ideas, so there is quite a lot of history in there, but, but I think that the history is important in terms of, of being able to tease out some of the kind of the, the, the distinctive concepts that I think are still useful and, and helpful uh, in, in, in our own times. What was the, for you, Ruth, what was the sort of catalyst for your interest in anarchism to begin with? So I, I came to anarchism as a student. So when I was uh, um, at university, I suppose that was um, during the, the late 90s. It was just at the time that Margaret Thatcher was coming into power in the UK. So as far as I was concerned, it was a period of, of um, fairly dark kind of politics. And when I went to university, I went to study history and politics and, and virtually all of the, the, the courses that I was involved with um, thought of socialism or represented socialism as some kind of Marxism, some variation of Marxism. And I hadn't really come across anarchism at all. And then I did, I'd studied two courses which changed my way of thinking about politics. And, and the first one was a history course and it looked at the origins of the Spanish Civil War or the Spanish Revolution. And for the first time, I was introduced to, to, a, to a movement that um, was uh, dedicated to the overthrow of, of property regimes and capitalism and 
but was also uh, very critical of of the monopolization of state power and that was the anarchist movement so that that's that sort of um, I suppose piqued my interest and then the following year because I was interested in histories of ideas and political thought I, d- I did any course that, that had that kind of label and and I did this thing that I didn't know what the content was at first but it was called political theory set texts and it turned out that it was taught by an anarchist called Bill Fishman and Bill Fishman's course was about the the corruption of revolution and he told this story from the French to the, to the Bolshevik revolution and uh, and again, it's it's it just opened my my world to a whole set of people who who I'd never heard of. So that's when I first got introduced to to people like Proudhon and Bakunin and Kropotkin, and and that set me off reading some of their primary sources, some of their original stuff. Um, and I never looked back. I mean, that that was the politics that I suppose chimed with me, um, and it and it stuck with me. I have a sort of circuitous route, so I actually sort of got radicalized through exposure to post-structuralist thought and sort of now, so I'm coming back around to anarchy. I mean, I grew up not knowing that anarcho-communism, for example, was, was even a a thing that (laughs) that existed. Um, Yes. So, I mean, that's only recently have I understood that that was even kind of a, a possibility. So. Yeah. So these, these were, these were huge movements. These were big movements. They were movements that, that were active across um, North America, Latin America, uh, Europe, Japan, you know, there were small groups of people, but they were, they often mobilized significant uh, labor movements. And of course, all of this history was eclipsed really by the, the success of the Bolshevik revolution. And then subsequently the, uh, the, the spread of Stalinism and, and the cold war. So, so anarchism kind of got wrote out, written out of, of, of socialist histories, but but these movements were significant, and they and they galvanized a lot of uh, of support. Today, and I'm, I'm very active on sort of on social media platforms and and what have you, and it feels like definitely even to this day, Marxism seems to be the kind of dominating ideology that you encounter. And there's not a lot of uh, anarchists are definitely in the minority, which I think I don't know. There's a resurgent Marxism, I think amongst people of my kind of age cohort or, or demographic. So I think since, I mean, since, yeah, I think since 1999 and the, the right. you know, the, so the emergence of the social justice movement, um, the, the attention that's been focused on horizontalism, on leaderless organization, on networking, um, the collapse of the, of the Soviet regimes, all of this actually has sort of concentrated attention again on anarchism. And, and I think one of the things that's, that's interesting about anarchism is that it's, it's not an ideology like, um, like Marxist communism is in the sense that because you don't have party organization and because right. you don't have um, policy um, statements and and definite kind of programs, you can have a much more um, diffuse sort of commitment, if you like, which can right. take different organisational forms. So, I mean, for me, and certainly from you know sitting in Europe, um, a lot of the, the 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 socialist politics is infused with anarchist ideas. Um, and and I think and the other thing that I think is exciting about anarchism is that. The anarchists, I mean, historically, the anarchists were never particularly interested in, in converting people. You didn't have to, to become an anarchist. So people, I mean, there were, as I say, important groups of people who, who self-identified as anarchist and organized as anarchist, but they weren't out to, to, to turn the world into to, 
to card-carrying anarchists. What they wanted was to develop anarchist practices through which people could uh, organize themselves, make decisions for themselves in any kind of way that they wanted, as long as they didn't want to dominate anybody else. That was the key to it. So you didn't have to sort of subscribe to a particular set of views or beliefs. You had to behave in in a particular way. And that was the difference. Right. And do you think that has to do with, or I think Marxism offers kind of through materialism or dialectical materialism, sort of a a rubric or a program for change or social change that I think attracts a lot of people that feel like anarchism lacks that. But in in a lot of ways, that's sort of the strength of anarchism is it's not tied to any particular specificity. Yeah, I, I mean, I suppose in an age of, of um, uh, the kinds of changes that were going on you know, the, the, in the, the late 19th, early 20th century, so uh, the democratization of, of regimes, the, uh, the growth of welfare within the state, all of these things um, made m- more traditional um, political organizing, institutional political organizing look attractive. And when that was underpinned, as it was in, in Marxist social democracy, um, with a promise of revolutionary transformation at the end of it, I think it's not surprising that the anarchists kind of lost the, um, the, the political battle about, about organizing. But in the long term, I don't think they've lost the battle about, about transformation because I think people can see that um, actually what's happened through social democracy is not a lot. Um, capitalism is still very strong. Um, power is still concentrated in in the hands of, of of minorities, and you know, an exploitation is is a norm. So, what was promised was never delivered. And I think you kind of can see this. Uh, so, I'll use France for an example. And there's you know the the issues going on there, the strikes and whatnot. Even in a sort of more social democracy oriented country versus here in the States where we're just, <laughs> there's the uphill battle just to reach any kind of remotely social democratic um, sort of <laughs> even at a, at a very small level with like something like the Bernie Sanders campaign, for example. So I think that's an interesting, interesting point. Yeah, I mean, I, I just think, you know, people have to go into into campaigning, into mainstream pa- campaigning with their eyes open and realise that uh, controlling the um, the mechanisms of, or, you know, the, the institutions of government can, can bring some change. I mean, that, you know, that's, it would be silly to think that it doesn't make a difference who's in power, but it can only bring change within fairly constrained limits. Certainly. But uh, not to stall us too much from actually discussing the book itself yeah. um we'll, we'll go ahead and jump in and, sure um beginning with the, the introduction appropriately um which is anarchism myths and realities and something i maybe wanted to begin going on about is the the two prongs i see so we have sort of this prudhan sterner um binary and then we have the utopian nihilistic tradition as well can you sort of ground us in, in, in these two kind of contrasting sets of ideas? So I'm, I'm not sure that I see these as, as, as uh, binaries as such. I mean, the, the story I try and tell is one that um, sort of starts with Proudhon. So Proudhon is the man who writes the book in 1840 called What is Property? 
and um, he presents a critique of the of the right to property and and comes up with the the famous phrase property is theft and he's incredibly important in France and there's a huge movement that the workers movement that gets kick-started through Proudhon's ideas which is very active in the the the, the, the 1840s um, and then there's a kind of a, a period where actually the way that socialists are organizing is not as, as, as Marxists and anarchists or anything else. They're, they're organizing as socialists and as trade unionists, and they're organizing primarily through the, the First International, which is a, an international um, organization, um, which is based in London. Marx is a, is a very important power within it. And it becomes the focal point for a, um, an argument that, that comes to a head in, in 1871, and which results in the division of the international, the demise of the international, and the rise then of self-organizing um, anarchists uh, versus uh, party political Marxists, if you like. And the person who leads that struggle is a guy called Michael Bakunin. But Bakunin sees himself really as a, um, in many ways as a follower of Proudhon. So he doesn't, although he, he accepts quite a lot of Marx's analysis, of critical analysis of, of, of um, capitalism, he sees himself within this tradition of Proudhon. And it's later on that I suppose what happens is that as anarchism takes up um, or becomes a force in different geographical regions, it takes on a different kind of hue. So certainly compared to the, the movements that organize in, in Europe, uh, which become strongly uh, inflected with communism. They they support uh, revolutionary struggles. Um, the the anarchists who call themselves Proudhonists in North America um, and who are deeply influenced by a, a guy called Benjamin Tucker, who runs a paper, a very influential paper called Liberty. Um, these people in North America start to, to read Proudhon through the lens of, of Stirner. So they revive Stirner's ideas. Stirner was, was active again in the 1840s. He was someone who was uh, rubbing shoulders with Marx and Engels in Berlin. He died very young and he wrote a, a book called The Ego and Its Own, uh, which was a, a kind of a critique of of um, humanist socialism, apart from anything else, um, and an assertion of of the ego as a as a unique being, um, and the the North Americans, the, the Tucker, uh, the followers of Tucker who read Proudhon and who who read it through read Proudhon through um, through Stirner's eyes, come to call themselves um, individualists, if you like, and and opponents of of the communists who are strong in Europe partly because they think that communism entails uh, violent revolution and therefore domination because violence is by, by nature uh, dominating. And partly because they think that communism is, is inevitably going to be monastic. So it's going to impose norms and rules uh, which will constrain individual liberty. Now, the anarchists, the, the, the anarchist communists dispute this, but it, it leads to a kind of a division within the movement, which gets reflected in organizational practices and also in economic preferences. So individualists tend to um, defend the, the limited right of, of property for individuals to possess, not to, not to pass on, but to possess in order to support uh, exchange, whereas the communists say the only way that you can protect society against um, individual accumulation and therefore the reintroduction of, of mechanisms of law and state 
is to abandon property altogether and to institute a, um, a, a sort of an economic regime where nobody owns anything. So, so there are these lines of division, but there's also incredible overlaps between anarchists. And I think it's a kind of a mistake, if you like, to, to exaggerate the, the, right. the divergences. I definitely sort of, I, I draw a little bit from Stirner in, in my sort of overall anarchistic, I, for lack of a better word, ideology, but that's probably too strong of a phrase uh-huh. even. <laughs> but definitely find him extremely, extremely interesting. Yeah, Stirner is interesting, and he has a you know he has fantastic turns of phrase, and 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 it, it's he's a great read. Um, but I think the the um, as in all movements, what happens is that ideas get attached to particular ways of of um, of organising, and a kind of a politics takes over, and the, the fear, if you like, of the of the communist anarchist uh, movement is that Sternerism seems to be picked up by um, a lot of um, pro-capitalist, laissez-faire market liberals, um, and therefore they reject Sterner because they want to reject anyone who right. supports capitalism. That's not to say that they're not sensitive to the distinction between what Sterner has to write and what Sternerites want to want to support. Uh, but they're, but these distinctions become very important because anarchists are, are very early on tarred with the same brush as, as, as what we call right libertarianism now, and they want to deny that charge. And then the, the other side, or maybe not side, but sort of area of, let's say, friction is between sort of a utopian vision and a, and a nihilism? Um, and again, I think I'd sort of, so, so for me, nihilism is a, um, I mean, I come at nihilism through the lens of Kropotkin. So Peter Kropotkin is, is one of the, um, is regarded as one of the key um, thinkers, I suppose, of, of late 19th and early 20th, 20th century anarchism. And he's a communist. He's, um, he's celebrated partly because uh, he's forced into exile by the Tsarist regime. Um, and so he attracts quite a lot of attention as, a, as an intellectual who's, who's been uh, persecuted, if you like, by, by a tyrannous um, government. And he's also important because um, he's an accredited scientist. So this is a man who's trained as a, as a geographer who writes in scientific journals um, and who produces a huge amount of, a huge volume of work. And he also produces uh, newspapers for the movement. So he's, he's, the, he's associated with a newspaper called Freedom, which, which is, again, very influential um, in Europe. And Kropotkin comes out of a Russian movement which thinks of itself as nihilist, but it doesn't think of itself as nihilist as, a, as I say, a, a Nietzschean would understand that term. Uh, the nihilists for Kropotkin are, um, are primarily women, actually, who are um, battling against the constraints of, of marriage and convention and um, propriety. And they're trying to go back to, to first principles, if you like, to, to say, I mean, much as, as Nietzsche does later, to say um, there's no absolute moral right or wrong. There are just ways of behaving which we have to work out through our interactions with each other. And as women, we're going to work those out as uh, women who want to live 
lives of our own uh, choosing and not lives of the choosing of the patriarch or the family or whatever you want to call it. So Kropotkin sees himself as a nihilist in that tradition, but not someone who philosophically says uh, okay. that individuals are can can be or should be um, can imagine themselves as abstracted from communities. So Kropotkin's position is everybody comes into the world with a bundle of uh, inherited norms and customs and traditions and practices, and they negotiate and navigate those traditions through resistance to domination. And through that resistance, they can define what is right and wrong, not forever, but just for now. Okay, so there are moral standards, and these are important because they shape our social interactions, but they only shape our interactions as social beings. Oh, that's a great distinction. <laughs> you really laid that out well. I like that a lot. Um, also, something to note about Kropotkin is he was a member of the aristocracy, if I remember Absolutely, yep. correctly. And that's, that's right. So it probably led to him getting the education to, to be, you know, get involved in the scientific endeavors and whatnot. That's right. So he's, so he's born into an incredibly privileged um, uh, background. I mean, it, he comes from a, a family of, of aristocrats, which can trace their, their history back to the, I don't know, 14th century or something. And, um, but he's radicalized actually as a, as a boy. Um, so he decides, I mean, he's, 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 he has a title prince. Um, and, and he renounces that when he's a teenager. Um, and although he then goes on to be educated in uh, the, the elite military academy of the, of the, of the time, um, and he, he graduates, you know, with, with, with kind of top marks. And he's given the opportunity to, 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 to go into the service of the court, to, you know, to, to wear the uniform and go to the balls and, and live what Tolstoy would, would later describe as a kind of an empty life. And he, he gives that up. Um, he's not interested in that at all. And he decides that he's going to, to go off instead to Siberia. Um, and again, it's, it's, it's actually for the military. So he's involved in, in, quite a, in, in work, in, in um, geographical work, which is useful for you know, developing military infrastructures and all the rest of it. But, but he goes off as an explorer. Um, and this completely radicalizes him. And he, he learns that, that uh, people who, who live in these remote parts of, of the empire, they don't need the empire. They don't need to be told what to do. They don't need uh, to be civilized as, as it would be um, understood, you know, in scare quotes, um, by some, some elite, elite regime. Actually, they need to be left alone um, and left to their own devices. Actually, they practice mutual aid, they support each other, um, and they practice their own ways of life. And that's anarchy. That's a kind of an anarchy in action. And that's what Kropotkin takes away from these, these expeditions that he goes on. Um, and it's, and it's, it's colors his whole understanding, if you like, of, of, of organization and what, um, an anarchist world could look like. And then moving on to the second part of, of our book, um, is, which is titled cultures. And yeah. here you, um, I think importantly make a, a great distinction between what an anarchist educational program or <laughs> idea of education is in contrast to what state education would be. And I'm going to actually read a direct quote here from the book. 
Anarchists reject the power advantages the law protects, the kind of compliance that hierarchy secures, and the brutal exploitation that colonization facilitates, because they contend that the choice between anarchy and domination is one that dominators insist upon in order to justify the status quo. The importance attached to education reflects the anarchist view that anarchy and domination are oppositional forces which operate in relation to each other. And then you have a really good diagram as well in the book where you can <laughs> lay out, um, let's see, let me can find this here quickly. It's a really good um, table here, and I'm going to go through this too a little bit. Is uh, So we have, on one hand, we've got the anarchist model for education. On the other side, we have state, and we've got, starting with the concept, the anarchist conception of, of education being self-mastery and socialization as opposed to education as a service and socialization under the state. Um, then we have management, which for anarchism is community-based education, contrasted with state-run education, obviously. Methods, practice-based learning for anarchists, and vocational training for state education. And then aims, learning to be a critical member of the community for anarchism, and learning to be a productive member of society for the state. Mm. Mm. But are, do you have any... I'm sure you can discuss this approach a little bit more detailed than, than I could in terms of education and anarchism and, and that vision. Yeah, so, so what I try and do in that chapter is, is think about um, the critique of domination that, that anarchists develop in the 1870s and 1880s and how that domination um, not only describes the sort of the institutional relationship between rulers and rules, but also how it uh, shapes our everyday relationships. So how people in any kinds of position of power tend to um, use their advantages in order to advance their own aims um, and to to keep other people um, subordinate to them. With the best will, you know, sometimes with the best will in the world, but other times um, because simply they they want to to get the status and the and the power and all the glory that comes with it. So domination operates um, not just between governors and governed, but also bet between all of us all the time, and that that leads me on to to think about education and what education means in the round because what the anarchists are attacking is a kind of an ideal type society where everything is structured from the top down and what they want to do is to restructure that society from the bottom up and that means that we have to change our ways of thinking about um, about power and the necessity of, of being told what to do, the necessity of obedience, uh, the necessity of law. And that's a, a kind of a reprogramming exercise. So education, which is understood within the state as a sort of a process of instruction, uh, which as Foucault would kind of put, <laughs> exactly. disciplines you in particular right. ways, right? The anarchists get there um, quite a long time in advance and they're saying, you know, all of these institutions are, are, are disciplining in some way, so we have to change them all. And the only way can, we can change that effectively is by thinking of ourselves um, in, in community, if you like, with other people in different ways. Now, that com community can be more or less... Um, uh, how shall I put it? Um, thick. 
So, you know, the anarchists are not sort of prescribing a particular set of social relations. We could have more or less privacy or we can we can work this out for ourselves. In fact, the, the, you know, the important point the anarchist wants to make is that the only um, practices and, and um, um, rules that you follow are the ones that you consent to for yourself. Yeah, so some people are going to like more interaction and other people are going to like less interaction. But people will find that balance. What they have to, to, to trust is the fact that you can find that balance without a third party telling you how it's going to be and what you have to do in order to have a, a, a productive relationship with anybody else. And that's a process of education. Right. And I think importantly, leaving the important thing is to leave a bit of space for that, that negotiation to occur. That's right. Because it, and it's, and it's not something that's, that's, that can, that it's not a one shot um, exercise. It's not something that you can be told how to do. It's only something you can develop. <laughs> right. And I think it has oh, to be, yeah, uh, what's the word I'm looking for? Kind of imminently, uh, maybe that's not even the best word. Absolutely right. That's right. You sort of have to lead, you, you, you know, we need some organization, but we don't want that organization to become so reified that it becomes this sort of top-down Foucauldian notion of, a, you know, just cranking out individuals to follow the program, so to speak. That's right. So, so we have institutions, but these are institutions which are flexible to our, to our daily practices. And, and that's, you know, to go back to the Kropotkin um, example in Siberia, right. that's exactly what he sees in, in these social groups. They make their own rules. You might not like those rules, but that doesn't matter because you're not part of that community. It's the rules that, that you're part of that you have to like. Um, and those are rules that you make uh, with other people. And in doing so, you build institutions, you build all kinds of things, but none of them are permanent and none of them are governed by single sources of authority. So any kinds of domination that exist within them can always be challenged by those who feel dominated, but only by the rule of non-domination. Sort of a multiplicity. That's right. So anarchy is always a process in in of adjustment because you can't predict today right. what practices you're going to, the, the, what practices you have that are going to appear dominating to people tomorrow. Absolutely. Ruth, do you have anything else that you'd like to add on this? Cause I think the the third chapter of where we get into the practices is, is pretty meaty. Yeah. Yeah. Let's, let's move on. That's fine. Okay, sure. Um, so as I said, we'll jump into the third chapter, which is, is chock full of, uh, great stuff. <laughs> it's a lot of material. So the, you sort of start out going on with the actual um, things like propaganda of, of the deed, which we maybe uh -huh. should define or try to explain to our listeners who aren't familiar with it. Sure. So, so propaganda by the deed is um, a term that's, that's introduced in the, in the late 1870s in, in Europe. And it describes um, uh, it's the accompaniment to, to propaganda by the word. So at this time, anarchists are producing all kinds of literature, newspapers, pamphlets, you name it, um, in order to try and um, educate people or you know, disseminate their ideas to a wider public, particularly workers. Um, 
And it occurs to anarchists that this isn't by itself, this is not effective. So actually what you have to do, and this is part of your education program, rather than go and tell people what anarchism means and expect them to sign on the dotted line, you show them what it means. And you do that by entering into confrontational acts. Now, propaganda by the deed is often understood wrongly, I think, to mean violence, and it doesn't. Actually, what it means is is um, revealing through your action the repressive nature of the state. So one of the things that anarchists do as propagandists of the deed uh, is to organise a, um, a march and carry a red flag, which has been banned. And this brings out the police against them, and the, the whole exercise is, dem- is, is designed to show that, that actually even a, you know, a, a, a harmless, uh, peaceful action will, will drive the repression of the state. Okay. Now, as, as time goes on, there's a, there's a very famous conference in, in 1881 in London um, where propaganda by the deed gets associated particularly with um, um, dynamite. <laughs> <laughs> um, <laughs> so uh, there's a kind of an argument about what's the best way of pursuing revolutionary change. And in parts of the world, and North America is is identified as one of these parts of the world, where incredible violence is being used against workers who are trying to campaign for for labor reforms, the eight-hour day and the rest of it. Um, The anarchists are arguing that, that they're being drawn into an armed struggle, which they can't hope to win on conventional terms because the state and the employers who are backed by the state possess the monopoly of violence. So what's the only, you know, the only way that you can, you can win an armed struggle by non-conventional means is to, use, uh, is to use shock tactics, if you like. And the idea is that if you use dynamite, which is a, um, compared to all the unstable kinds of explosives that were being used at the time, uh, this is a stable explosive. The idea was that you could, you could um, shorten any kind of armed struggle that the state was drawing you into by demonstrating your your will, if you like, to to pursue your revolutionary goals. That the state would be uh, be so taken aback or be so shocked by the fact that that they 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 were meeting um, equivalent force that they would give up. Now, clearly, it didn't work out like that, but that was how propaganda by the deed got associated with um, with bombing and violence. And later on, as 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 I mean, there were kind of cycles of violence in different parts of of the world. I mean, particularly in France and in Spain, there was in, incredible violence meted out against anarchists. Um, what happened was that that particular individuals decided that they would uh, enter into to revenge violence. And so they went on and assassinated various heads of state um, and, and, and became known as, as, as terrorists as a result. But, I mean, it's important to bear in mind that, I mean, the first bomb, the first anarchist bomb that was planted in Paris was actually planted by the police. Uh, it wasn't planted by the anarchists. Uh, and it was used in order to, to demonize anarchists. And that the anarchists themselves um, were always divided on questions of violence. Um, because of the response that it engendered, uh, not only from from state authorities, but also from from a wider public. In terms of the sort of two, you kind of talk about two specific historical events. One, I believe, is the, there's a Tsar that is assassinated. And then, of course, the, uh, the Archduke, Archduke Ferdinand. 
yeah kind of so, for World War one so so the so the period of propaganda by the deed is is kind of marked by these two assassinations the first in 1881 uh, which is Tsar Alexander the second and the last one which is the assassination in Sarajevo which which triggers the first world war and it's and it's between that period basically that the anarchists are um, directly involved in assassination plots and um, and public bombings but but it's you know it's not the main part of their activity the important thing about it of course is that it's it generates a red scare um, it's it, um, it it brings this into life a whole uh, literature uh, which describes anarchist violence. Uh, so, you know, people like Conrad, Henry James, I mean, there's a whole sort of cheap literature as well that's that's produced at the time. So it tars the anarchists with this brush of of being terrorists, um, and which they've never been able to shake. Right, yeah, I was going to say that largely persists whenever you think, yeah. think of anarchism is automatically this. Yeah, yeah, that's right. You move on to discuss a little, I think you already actually addressed this, but I'll see if you have anything to add. You talked a little bit about Kropotkin um, and his critique of Nietzsche and Stirner and the sort of lack of morality that they, they're kind of. Yeah. For. So, so within the anarchist movement, there's a, I mean, one of the, one of the lines of argument about violence um, in the anarchist movement is that it's um, promotion of individual acts uh, distracts people from from movement organizing and it frustrates movement organizing because individual acts of violence bring out enormous repressive force against anarchists and so it makes it very difficult for them to, to organize and it makes it even more difficult for anarchists to communicate with 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 anybody else in the world the you know the the marginalized groups that they want to they want to address so i suppose the, the Returning to the sort of the um, the fracture lines between uh, communists and non-communists within the anarchist movement, the communists um, become much more concerned with uh, sustaining uh, movement organisations over time, and therefore start to criticise those who attempt to justify philosophically uh, individual. Actions and those people—they're not the same people as as Tucker in America. In fact, he's absolutely opposed to any kind of violence, revolutionary or individual or otherwise. Um, but there are groups within the the European scene who are saying it's not for you anarchists, you communists, to tell us what revolutionary actions we should take. And they use—they refer to Stirner and they refer to Nietzsche to say it's only up to us, to each individual, to decide what they will be able to, what they are willing to do in conscience to further their own ends. Um, and they refuse to accept any kind of um, what they would see as a kind of uh, um, attempt to legislate their activism by any other anarchist. And this causes an enormous tension within the movement. And then you moving on to discuss uh Platformism, which is something that Nestor Machno developed, um, and I'll read a little bit from the text, actually. The platform was anarchist, but called itself libertarian communist. The change in language reflected its founders' desire to distance themselves equally from the Bolsheviks, who would also call themselves communists, 
and individualist anarchism. And yeah, correct. I, I have actually, I did an episode on Nestor Machno a little bit, uh, delving into a little bit of the history of him, a very fascinating, extremely fascinating character and pretty inspiring for, for what he did in, in Ukraine. Um, I definitely encourage listeners to go check that out. I did that with uh, John Paul Zygtrman, So, Right. No, no, he is. He's a, he's a, he's a, he's an extraordinary character um, who single, single handedly, I mean, sort of organizes a, um, a militia army, which fights uh, czarist forces in Ukraine. Um, and then subsequently um, the red army, um, which, which ultimately defeats him. And the platformists uh, and Machno go into to exile in in Paris. But one of the things that comes out of of the um, of the platform of the experience of of, of Machno and, and the platform is this is this constitution, um, which is the the constitution of the platform, and it and it sets out a um, a set of rules, if you like, for um, not just for militia, but but for um, as they see it communist organizers who want to avoid the um, centralization of, of Bolshevism and Leninism, but who also want to protect organization as they understand it from uh, the transgressions of individuals who refuse to be bound by any kinds of rules. But the the program itself, I mean, it is typically anarchist in the sense that again, it doesn't have, it doesn't have single points of authority in it. Um, it's based on voluntarism. It's based on decentralized federation. Um, and it's also presented as a document in the making. So it's not a perfect document. It's actually presented to you explicitly as an imperfect document because it can only be perfected through practice of people who want to join the platform. Um, so in that sense, I think it's a, it is a very anarchistic uh, or anarchist uh, constitution. And from there, we'll sort of delve in. There's, I don't, and this is even difficult to, to to keep organized. But there's sort of, I guess this is almost like a historical progression of different of anarchism as it's moving through history and, and changing and so forth. The first um, would be under the uh, sort of post left anarchism, and if you don't mind, just kind of talking briefly about post left anarchism and sort of what that set of ideas is ultimately. Yeah, so so um, it's post-left anarchy rather than anarchism because one of the things that post-left um, anarchists don't like is ideology. <laughs> so so what they're Fair resisting <laughs> uh, is the what they're uh, yeah what they're defending, if you like, is the is the fluidity of of anarchism, and what they're resisting is is actually I mean they would hate something like the platform because they see that as um, an attempt to make inflexible something that must always remain flexible so post-left anarchy is is about celebrating the the free actions of individuals about voluntarism and about joy i think that's one of the things that that comes across very um very strongly in in, in post-left anarchy it's 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 a kind of um a celebration of 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 transgression and fun as much as anything else and um and it's associated with with particular individuals. I suppose Bob Black is one of them. Hacking Bay is another one. Um, and it's uh, a reaction against um, rigid workerist kinds of ideas that they think have 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 um, dominated in 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 anarchist organising. 
So they're not anti-communist, but they're and they're, they're certainly not. Um, you know, they they identify with, or certainly Black does, I think, with quite a lot of the the historical figures. What they don't like is is the way that some of those ideas have been uh, instantiated in movements. I think there's a lot of confusion around post anarchy. Did you say post anarchy? Rather than anarchism, okay. Um, because I feel isn't uh, if I'm not mistaken, would something like the kind of post civ and anti civ and all of that fall under post-anarchism or post-anarchy rather like John Zerzan, um, for example, that whole. Um, so, so there are, there are definitely um, connections and they come from, um, I suppose the, there are ecological strains within post-left anarchy, which, which make those connections um, quite strong. But I think Zerzan, um, yeah, Zerzan is has a has a there's a different take, if you like, um, because Zerzan's starting point, I think, is is about the domination of technologies, um, right? Rather than the this kind of movement uh, rigidity, right? So yeah, there there are I think there there are affinities between them, but I think they're slightly different. Okay, because I often found myself, and you kind of point out this difference here in terms of. I was sort of was always conflating post-left anarchism with post-anarchism. Right. No, and they're also aligned, but they're again different. And I think they're different because they they start from from different perspectives. So certainly, Saul Newman's post-anarchism starts off not with a critique of movement, but a, but with a critique of the history of ideas. So so you know certainly in his earlier work. Um, Newman represents the anarchists as um, Marxists who just didn't like the state, but he reads them as equally determinist um, and equally rooted in Enlightenment philosophies, which I think, you know, that's where I sort of part company with him. But I think that means, or what, what comes from that is a, is a much more um, uh, sort of philosophical um, statement of about anarchism, right. uh, which links where you come in, which you know links to the post-structuralists and all the rest of it, rather than something that's 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 driven by a critique of movement and, and movement organising. Certainly, that have you interacted with Saul at all? Just out of curiosity, I'm actually oh I, yeah 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 I corresponded with him. I'm hoping to have him on when he returns to the UK later yep. later this year. Yeah, no, I have I, uh, not not for a while, but. Um, uh, yeah, yeah. Uh, we've um, collaborated on on projects. I, he, you know, I I, um, I contributed a an essay to his volume on Sterner. Um, yeah, I, I I read his work. Um, we've been taking part in conferences together. Uh, yeah, all sorts of things. Very yeah. nice. Um, yeah. So actually, too, I have uh, Todd May will be joining me in a couple of weeks as well. All right. Very nice. So, so I've met Todd May once. So I'm, I'm really looking forward to those. But any, anyways, back to, uh, back to our discussion. I uh, was just kind of curious. Um, and so there's a, interestingly a couple of diff, different strains here. And you talk about maybe two, maybe that was the two sort of camps within social anarchism were the post-anarchists and maybe. Right. So no, the social anarchists, I, I, I associate um, 
with Bookchin, with Murray Bookchin. Okay. Who um, is actually one of the people that 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 um, that Bob Black criticizes very very strongly. Um, and what I try and say, I suppose, when I talk about social anarchism, is that um, social anarchism, because of the um, because of the way that Bookchin takes it up, gets associated or linked to a defence of a kind of a, what's what's called class struggle anarchism, um, but that it can mean something else too. It can mean it can refer more loosely to a kind of an ethic which is based on social practice. And what I try and say in that section is that there's a kind of a tension between those two things because some of the people that in later life um, Bookchin attacked um, as individualists actually were social anarchists uh, who, who just thought that rather than, than organise on the basis of, of um, well, who wanted to emphasise, I suppose, the importance of, of what what. Bookchin derides slightly as lifestyle practices, um, but actually lifestyle anarchism comes from a, a view of, of social practice, which can also be understood as social anarchism. So th- th- it's just different ways of understanding right. the label and the tensions between them. Because I, th- I suppose one of the things I want to resist is the idea that, that these labels mean very definite things. Actually, labels within anarchism are always fluid. Um, and that <laughs> makes it, me. that makes it, yeah, that makes it <laughs> difficult, but it has to be understood like that for me. Right. Okay. Um, so under that umbrella, and I'm, you mentioned Tukun, and I just wanted to ask you a little bit about, cause I'm not as familiar, but I have, it's been popping up in my orbit over the last, I don't know, maybe two or three months. And then just, I haven't had an opportunity to read any of the, of the stuff that they produced, but I think the aesthetic at least is is very it's one that i'm very drawn to mm-hmm. yeah no i think that's right and i think um it's a it's a kind of uh, for me it's it's reminiscent of situationism and right. um, um i mean and, and the i suppose the the major drive is against uh consumer cultures but it's not i think it's certainly the the the, the first statements of tikkun are are detached somewhat from from anarchism partly because it comes from a very strong hegelian background um so critical metaphysics is all about uh thinking in in dialectical terms which typically is is not strong in anarchism um and it's also quite um it's, it it can be totalizing uh, and there are statements in Tikkun which, you know, for example, you know, this is the only way that you can understand revolutionary transformation. You know, and, and everybody can make these kinds of statements, but they're they're problematic, I think. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I don't know if you're familiar with um, Nina Power's critique of Tikkun where she, she, uh, she uh, rejects their concept of the young girl, which is used as a, I mean, you know, that it actually says it's not a gendered concept, but it kind of is um, because it's used as a, to epitomize all that's bad, all that's wrong in, in, in materialist consumer cultures and all, all of the alienation that comes from that. So they're an important influence, particularly because of the way that uh, social movements draw on all kinds of different traditions. Uh, and they, you know, they've been very influential, but I think they're slightly detached from anarchists um, or anarchist traditions. And you mentioned 
the situation is where where do you feel like they would fall and again we don't want to categorize them too you know with a with a firm fist but where would they fall in this kind of division among sort of the social anarchism and I don't know if they fall. I mean, I, I think where they, I mean, where the overlap, the overlaps come um, in this sort of generalised critique that comes out of the late sixties of, of of white goods cultures, uh, suburbanisation, uh, and the kind of the the empty society, uh, the repressive society. So there are whole sort of groups of people, including Marcuse, who are talking about this kind of stuff. Paul Goodman in the anarchist tradition is is a really important figure. Um, and situationism sort of captures a lot of that um, anger and and critique. Uh, and the idea of the spectacle, of course, gets taken up by you know the left. I think generally, but again, I think the the intellectual foundations of of, of, of situationism are, are pretty firmly rooted within Marxism um, rather than within anarchism. But there's a you know I don't like to sort of to to, to stress you know there are the good the great things about situationism. I suppose is they open the ways for dialogue between these what had become. Uh, fairly antagonistic um, divisions, and that that for me is a, a productive thing. You mentioned briefly the sort of, I guess the anarchist, um, not uh, let's see, I guess not really being Hegelian in terms of their philosophical standpoint. This is something that I'm extremely, extremely interested in, in delving into, um, just in conversations with with people all the time. Like I said, I'm often um, in communication or debate with, with Marxists and so forth. And this is always a, a big thing when we're trying to, to hash things out is, you know, the dialectic, dialectical thinking and how that, how that impacts the state and anarchism, et cetera, and just comparing and contrasting those ideas. Do, do you have anything that you could, you could add for us? I think that, so, so the, 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 the big worry traditionally um, is the idea that there's a historical path, right? Like the teleological so, I mean, aspect. Yeah, the teleological exactly. So, and because it's 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 really difficult to to say. So you know, leave Hegel to one side, leave Marx to one side, because you know, because you can interpret Hegel in different ways, and you can right. interpret Marx in different ways. You know, these these are complex, rich thinkers. Um, but how those ideas get boiled down into socialist practice, that's the point at which uh, people start to shout. And when an idea of teleology gets taken up by a political movement in order to, um, to outline a, a single program of action which is supposedly informed by a science philosophically <laughs> rooted, that's the point at which the anarchist says no. Right. So it's not, you have to, you know, it's not a critique of Hegel. <laughs> it's not a critique even perhaps of Marx. It's a critique of Hegelianism in Marxism translated into social democracy. Because I think even Bookchin was fairly Hegelian. I think he had his idea was something like ecological or dialectical ecology or something like that. Well, so, and, Where, and, with, and, which and, was and, sort of removing the teleological aspect to it. 
yeah, and and Bookchin comes from a you know Bookchin becomes an anarchist from a from a from being involved in in youth mar- as a as, as a youth in Marxist organisations. So he has a lot of this um, this background, if you like, this kind of intellectual heritage, which he turns to different purposes. So as I say, it would be it would be crazy to say you can't have Hegel in anarchism because it's there and it's there in Stirner too, um, but it's it's. It's not the the dominant framework for thinking, um, or for uh, yeah to 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 address problems of of liberation and problems of emancipation. That's not where typically anarchists start, because I suppose you know it it, it becomes a worldview, and that's and that's problematic. Certainly, um, you move on to discuss intersectionality. A little bit, which yep. I think is 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 quite good because I think number one, it's a term that's completely, oftentimes, completely misunderstood by everyone. Number two, again, with the rise of or the sort of popularity of Marxism, at least on sort of the I guess online spaces, for example, this is something that oftentimes there's a site of conflict, um, and is seen as sort of more of a liberal idea than than socialist or communist. Um, but I want to read something. You make This is just such an excellent um, <laughs> idea of the idea of the invisible side of privilege. Uh-huh. That I thought was just fantastic. So I want to read that before I let you um, delve into this a bit. You don't have to worry about whether you come across as too straight when you're going to a job interview or whether your str- straight friends will think you're denying your straightness if you don't dress or talk straight enough or whether your gay friends will be uncomfortable if you don't take them to a straight club, or if they'll embarrass you by saying something ignorant about getting hit on by somebody of the opposite sex. This analysis goes beyond worries about discrimination or prejudice to the very heart of what we consider normal and neutral, what we consider different and other, what needs explaining, what's taking as read, the prejudices in favor of being straight aren't recognizable as prejudice because they're built into our very perceptions of of what is the default way to be. Yeah. So I, I think, I mean, that's a quote, isn't it? So yes. I think I'm, it's, it, it's, <laughs> um, it was actually, um, it was produced by the Anarchist Federation or a, um, a member of the Anarchist Federation. And, and I quote it at length because I think it is such a brilliant statement. And um, particularly within the context of the Anarchist Federation, which is, you know, has a, um, I don't uh, understand itself as a as a communist anarchist communist organisation, um, and what's going on there is is or what I'm trying to highlight, I suppose, is that um, even anarchist groups which think of themselves as 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 largely anti-capitalist and therefore directed primarily towards the um, or against exploitation against capitalist exploitation actually have a very non-standard understanding of class, uh, so they don't think that liberation comes through solely through um, through classlessness because status is also crucial to to domination so you can't have um, uh, you know getting rid of capitalism by making everybody the same in terms of their economic capability is simply not going to be liberation because it doesn't take account of the differences between uh, even people of the same economic group. 
And that's what this quote is getting at. You know, you have to recognise that uh, that there are different, um, that people come with different histories, with different backgrounds, and that, that, that social norms are um, act in such a way that some people are going to be relatively disadvantaged and relatively privileged. And that's what intersectionality from an anarchist perspective is getting at, I think. So whereas a liberal sees intersectionality in terms of the differential effects of law, I mean, I think that's where Crenshaw comes from, um, on, on, on different groups of people within, uh, within society. What the anarchist is looking at is how domination works within even horizontal organisations, even classless organisations, because of the social norms and the social practices that we have inherited. And that's what we have to, to fight against. Which is, I think, a really important point. And, you know, something that's incredibly interesting, and this is somewhat anecdotal, but I find that, and again, this is through my experience in, in online spaces, is that there's a significant amount of, uh, of trans identifying folks that are anarchists or Marxist, but it's almost, it feels almost like the proportionality seems very high for those, for those people, which I think is super interesting in terms of what does that say about anarchism? What does that say about something like intersectionality? Yeah. I mean, I, I mean, I guess, you know, anarchists, um, anarchists promote themselves as, um, as people who, who want to fight against marginalization and you know they don't always succeed and it's 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 an education all the time um but i think that stance is attractive at least to, to some groups who consider themselves marginalized within the mainstream be that right or left um so from that point of view you know if anarchy is 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 about non-domination then it has to be about non-domination wherever Right. Marginalized people identify it. So, which would be actually a good segue into the next um, topic, which is feminist anarchism. Uh -huh. I want to read just another fantastic quote here as well that I, I love this. <laughs> Applying this analysis to feminism, she argued, I never expect men to give us liberty. No, women, we are not worth it until we take it. How shall we take it? By the ballot? A fill-up of your paper rag. The ballot hasn't made men free, and it won't make us free. Which that last line, I think, is really yeah. inspiring. It's Valtteri de Clare, um, who was a, an educator. She was um, active in Philadelphia. Um, she was an amazing woman. She was um, she was shot three times at close range by uh, one of her former students, and um, she refused to identify him. Oh wow! Um, because she <laughs> she she stuck to the principle of of, uh, of uh, not using the law um, wow. to punish. Yeah, so she was she was an incredible person. But wow. I mean, but she's a she's she's sometimes classified as an individualist. I mean, she actually called herself an anarchist without adjectives. So she didn't want to. What she argued was that you know anarchy is going to take the form that it does, depending on where it takes root, because it's only people that can make anarchy. You can't call it in advance. You can't call it as, as communist. You can't call it as individualist. It's just going to be, it'll be anarchy without adjectives. It'll be what people make it. But um, she's also, I think, extremely interesting because although she, uh, she like, like all anarchist feminists, um, 
who often didn't call themselves feminists, actually, because feminism was associated with the suffrage campaign, um, but all pro-feminist anarchists, they rejected the idea of the vote uh, and they rejected the idea of legal reform because they thought it would leave uh, relations of, of domination intact and that the only way that you could really uh, free yourself uh, was by asserting your right not to treat a right as a permission that could be granted by the state to protect you, but asserting your right. And in asserting that, you're not only asserting it against the state, you're asserting it against other people. So you have to think very carefully about what it is you're going to, what, what powers you want to, to claim against other people in order to, to bring about anarchy, because uh, you can only claim that which will make you free without dominating anybody else. That's what she's talking about. And she says, the only way that you can do that is by your direct action. You cannot wait for, or you cannot rely or, or trust representatives to do something for you. You're only free when you stand there and you say, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to be. And this is how I'm going to behave. And that's my right. Which is a great segue into a section on direct action in the state. And I'm going to read another fantastic quote. Direct action may be the extreme of violence or maybe as peaceful as the waters of the brook of Siloa that go softly. What I say is that the real non-resistance can believe in direct action only never in political action for the basis of all political action is coercion. Even when the state does good things, it finally rests on a club, a gun or a prison for its power to carry them through. Yeah. Absolutely. And that's, that's also um, uh, Voltering declare. So, and, and I think it's a really important point because what she's arguing is that the argument between or what divides anarchists is not violence or nonviolence, or that shouldn't be the argument that divides them. Uh, the way you behave can only be determined by um, the local actor, him or herself. So there's no principle about what you do. It's what you decide is legitimate from your position as the, as the asserter of right, okay? And she says, depending on where you are and what kind of uh, context you're operating in, that's going to be the deciding factor, not principle itself. So change comes through different means which are determined by local actors. They're not predetermined by uh, absolute principles of right or wrong, because there are, are no such principles. Very appealing to me. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> that moves us on into uh, chapter four, which is conditions. And here you sort of go through, I think, some of the historical examples, which we've touched on a bit in terms of yeah. plat platformism and the Spanish art anarchists. I don't know if you have anything else in terms of conditions on those two topics or if we should move forward a little bit. Yeah, we can move on. I mean, the, 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 the point I wanted to make, I suppose, was that um, contrary to, uh, certainly to, to a lot of, of critics, anarchists are, um, are, are, are rule makers. And, and what, what, what one of the things that goes on in the, in the Spanish Revolution is, is that, that local collectives 
are actually writing constitutions or making their own rules. And sometimes they're not written down, but they're understood. Um, and what I try and do is recover the ways in which people organise locally. So, so peasant collectives, how they reorganise the land, how they reorganise production, um, and how they manage their affairs without anybody telling them how, how to do it. Uh, and I think that's, um, that's an inspiring uh, example. And then in terms of, you mentioned it briefly, sort of, I guess, the looking at democracy and anarchism, um, again, through Saul Newman, I don't know, again, if we might have covered enough of that, but let me know. Yeah, so, so I think I mentioned, I think I mentioned Saul Newman as a, as a critic of democracy, but in, a, in, in, the, in the limited sense that he's, he's against um, representation. So it's a, it's, it's a, um, I mean, not a typical, but it's a, it's a, it's a common anarchist position that um, you can find anarchists saying they're not, uh, they're, they're against democracy. But what they mean by that is that they're against the way in which in, um, democracy has been institutionalized in representative regimes, representative liberal regimes. And what they want is a different form of democracy, which is based uh, on on grassroots decision making and local practice, rather than this sort of representative authoritarian system, which sort of leads us directly into into Bookchin and yeah. his ideas of communalism, social ecology, libertarian municipalism, etc. Yeah, and um, so I, I use Bookchin as a um, as I suppose as, as an anarchist who has. Who has, who has developed one of the most um, comprehensive um, visions, if you like, of a, of a, a democratic, decentralised anarchist um, organisation, which is, which is based pretty much on the city, so how cities could function differently. And I think actually what he has to say is, has not only been, I mean, it has, it's been influential in, in Rojava, um, but it, it, it should, um, it still resonates, I think, particularly in, um, in the UK at the moment where people are increasingly talking about, um, city organization and city powers and, and what cities could do, uh, to take, uh, their own, take charge of their own affairs. You know, what could a city like London do if it, you know, now it can control its, its transport, it could think about its infrastructures it could you know what could you do what could you do in Manchester what could you do in Liverpool um, and Bookchin helps us think about those kinds of things there's also mention here of a uh, Bookchin sort of his critique of consensus yeah so um which which I think is is I mean it's influenced by his own experience of of of, of being involved in in organizations that use consensus and and the point that he that he makes about consensus is that it like anything else it can become rarefied so um and 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 in becoming rarefied it you know people defenders of of consensus decision making he argues can uh lose sight of the power advantages that it can um facilitate so consensus itself doesn't prevent the most articulate from putting their points more forcefully than the less articulate for example so there's a he's kind of pointing to what's sometimes called the tyranny of structurelessness um, and he says you know we shouldn't anarchists shouldn't be afraid uh, of using different tools to make decisions but I mean it seems to me that this isn't an either or question this is simply a matter of 
of how you want decisions to be made in any particular uh, realm or framework or sphere, and you can have complex systems of decision making. So I don't think you have to choose one thing over the other. But I think, um, uh, you know, the arguments can become a little bit polarized. The, the awareness of the limitations of these sort of tools, right? Yeah, that's right. That's right. And, and you know, one of the things that comes out that, that came out of, of um, the observation of some Occupy camps was that consensus had been adopted as, a, as the only instrument of decision making, the only tool of decision making. And that didn't always uh, that didn't always work. Actually, what you found was that there were high levels of abstention. Uh, people weren't turning up to, to the to the, the assemblies because consensus had become so difficult to achieve. Right. So, you know, again, you know, so at what point do you need everybody to, to, to exercise uh, consensus and at what, in what realms do you, can you introduce other kinds of, of decision-making, maybe super majorities or, or whatever it happens to be. So you can have, you know, anarchist systems can be complex uh, and you don't lose. Democracy is not zero-sum in that sense. It's not all without consensus or nothing. Uh, it's a mix of things. It's a mix of tools. That sort of carries us forward into the fifth chapter, which is prospects. And you briefly mentioned Rojava and, and I think, uh, Abdullah Asalan, which we've actually I did an episode on his piece, uh, Democratic Confederalism, as well. Uh-huh. Um, listeners can go check out. As well, I'll post that in the show notes. But um, what are your sort of thoughts on Asalan, Rojava, democratic confederalism, and and sort of maybe the path that, I guess, maybe points to for us? So, I mean, for, I mean, I'm detached. Um, I'm not been to Rojava. I'm, I, you know, I I know people are involved in the solidarity actions. Um, and to me, it's been, you know, an incredibly exciting and inspiring um, movement. And the um, the threats, the military threats to the revolution are, um, you know, incredibly uh, saddening. I mean, I can't think of a of another term. I mean, you know, I think the the idea of of the the autonomous commune of, of and the, 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 the women's activism within it has all been incredibly powerful. Um, yeah, that's all I can say. I mean, it's, it's, um, I don't want to particularly sort of claim it for anarchism because I think it's more complicated than that. Right. But I certainly think that um, it's a fantastic uh, demonstration of, of, of an anarchistic right. um, experiment. Of possibility, um, at least. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I would certainly agree. Um, and then just your final thoughts in terms of anything else you want to say about, about the book? Or, <laughs> and I, <laughs> there's so, a lot. So um, I kind yeah, of skipped I've, the history portion, which I think <laughs> is, is valuable. But um, there's definitely a number of biographies as well of very important figures that we discussed. Yeah, I mean, I, I just, I suppose, I one of the aims of the book was to was to bust the myth um, that anarchism is is about chaos and that anarchism is um, is violent. I mean, that's that's certainly not the case. I mean, anarchism for me is is an is a is a complex, um, powerful uh, and empowering idea and a practice and a fantastically rich culture. And 
I think one of the things that comes out of, of anarchism for me is the, is the possibility always of changing our arrangements. So just as we can think about liberalizing or republicanizing, we can think about anarchizing. And you don't need to adopt a particular aesthetic or point of view or anything in order to do that. You just have to question what you're being told and why you're being told and how you can resist it. Um, because, you know, we're, we're cooperative, self-determining beings, and that's all we need to know about the ways in which we should organize, how we can maximize um, our cooperation and our, our scope for, for free action. And, and anarchism is all about that. Well said, well said. Um, what about in terms of, do you have any um, upcoming projects or anything you're working on right now that uh, folks might be? Uh, so if people, are, if people are interested in, in um, some of the historical figures that I talk about, I'm, I'm doing a series of pamphlets, or I've written a series of pamphlets with Dog Section Press, um, and it's called Great Anarchists. There are 2,380 words each, <laughs> and they just give you a little snapshot of a character, of a, of a historical character, um, from from Lucy Parsons, who was active in Chicago, to, to Louise Michel, who was a communard, Kropotkin, Bakunin, Oscar Wilde's in there. Um, they're beautifully produced. They're passport size. They've got lovely drawings in by Clifford Harper. And, um, yeah, you can get them free online. Um, and, yeah, that's that's one of the things I'm involved in. I suppose the other thing, I'm involved in, in, um, in thinking about constitutionalizing um, and I'm increasingly interested in, in thinking about the relationship between anarchism and degrowth uh, and what anarchist organization or how that helps us think about uh, thinking about alternative economics. If you have a, uh, if you have a link to the, the pamphlets, definitely send me those via email and I'll be sure to yeah. include those in the show notes so people can check those out as well. Fantastic. Uh, but Ruth, this has been a fantastic conversation. I really don't have any, any additional questions at this point? For you? <laughs> I've really enjoyed it. Oh, it's been fantastic. Um, I will let you get on with your evening. And I'll let you get on with your day. <laughs> <laughs> right. Just getting started. Absolutely. But thank um, you. Thank you very much. Oh, of course. I, again, very, very grateful that you're taking the time out of, to have this conversation. This is amazing. This is kind of what anarchism is about, I think. In, in a sense, I had had this idea of you know, Sterner's idea of the union of egoists is sort of often times uh, illustrated on the, on the podcast Two people willingly come to, coming together. So. Yeah, sure. But we'll be in touch. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I will probably, um, so I will schedule this to come out next Monday and I will definitely provide you a link once it is it's up and running. Um, but I'll Fabulous. let you, uh, once again, Ruth Kenna, and this is podcast care of Cooper Cherry signing off. Thanks a lot. Bye. Absolutely. Have a good evening. Yeah, you too. All right. Bye-bye. The very rules of eating, of negativity and singularity. Including the ultimate form of singularity, which is podcast.